As we look at Matthew chapter 9 this morning, uh, we want to uh, close off this chapter. And uh, it, it, it talks about, the, in the remaining verses here, of the compassion of Christ. And so we've been unveiling the compassion of Christ last week and this week. And so I just want to read for us, just so it's fresh in our mind, the the text that's before us, um, beginning in in verse uh, 35. It says there in Matthew chapter 9, Then Jesus went about all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues, preaching the gospel of the kingdom, and healing every sickness and every disease among the people. But when he saw the multitudes, he was moved with compassion for them because they were weary and scattered like sheep having no shepherd. Then he said to his disciples, The harvest truly is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. And in verse 1 of chapter 10 And when he had called his twelve disciples to him, he gave them power over unclean spirits to cast them out and to heal all kinds of sickness and all kinds of disease. Last week, we we looked at the response of the people. We saw the marvelous, the the, uh, marveling multitudes who wanted to keep Jesus at a distance, but they were interested in what was going on. And we also saw the people who rejected him, the religious people of Jesus' day, totally rejected Christ and everything he stood for. And that was a response, basically, that was from that last set of miracles. They looked at Christ and they said, the power that you cast these demons out and you heal these people by is not the power of God, it's the power of Satan. And you could see just how close their heart was to the Lord. And then we looked at the ministry of Christ, and we looked at three aspects of it. First of all, the teaching ministry, and we talked about how he would go into the synagogues and he would teach the Word of God. He would expositionally teach the Word of God to the people there. And it always got a reaction. And most times it wasn't a good one because they weren't used to that. And then we talked about his preaching ministry, how he would go out in the villages and he... We talked about in that area, there was probably 200 and some villages at that time, maybe 3 million people that he went around and taught and preached the the gospel of the kingdom to. See, and those two things are important to understand, teaching and preaching. Um, Sometimes that, you know, we, we, we we think they're the same thing. They're not. Teaching is taking the word of God and making it simple, known, or it's, it's meaning simple and plain and, 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 and being able to explain it to the people as they did in the Old Testament. And the preaching is taking the gospel of Christ out to the lost and, and preaching it, heralding it, shouting it, doing whatever you need to do to communicate the gospel. We do that with our lips. We also do it with our lives. The unfortunate thing today is so many people do it with their lips, but their lives are all messed up. And so... The message people hear from their lips doesn't mean anything because they're preaching a Christ that can forgive and can change one's life. And then the ears, the the minds of the people that are hearing the message through their ears look at that individual and go, yeah, well, why didn't it work for you? So it's important to understand that we have to make sure that our life, we're living a life that honors and glorifies Christ, lest we disqualify ourselves and the message of the gospel. 
And then the third thing we looked at was the healing ministry of Christ, how he went throughout this time. He not only taught and he preached, but he also healed. He touched people and literally healed. It says every sickness, every disease. That's an amazing thing. If we had somebody on the peninsula that could come down the peninsula and heal every sickness and every disease, don't you think you'd want to go see him? I know I would, (laughs) just in case. I mean, I don't think there's anything wrong with me, but just in case, you know, because you never know. And in Hebrews, it tells us, as we read this morning, that Jesus is touched with the feelings of our infirmities. That he learned suffering through his humanness. God came down and he took on a human body just like yours and mine. And when he did that, he subjected himself to all the hurts and the aches and the pains that we feel every day. See, before God took on a human body, God had no personal experience of physical pain. Do you realize that? He never knew what it, what it would be like to have physical pain. He never experienced it because he didn't have a human body. He couldn't. He never experienced the effect that it might have of rubbing up against people in a multitude of, of crowds and seeing all these people needy. Never experienced that because he wasn't in a human body before Christ came. But the Bible says that God dwelt among us and touched us and was touched by us and fully identifies with our pain, with our suffering. And that's what makes Christianity unique, beloved. It really does. That we reach out and we touch people. Other world religions aren't that way. Hinduism is probably one of the most cruel of all religious systems in the world because their caste system basically forbids that if you're in a certain caste, you can't touch anybody from a different caste. So they have all these lines of demarcation set up. And Christ shattered all that when he was here on earth. Even the Pharisees had that to some extent. What's he hanging around with those sinners for? Remember, they always made that accusation. Or those in... Followers of Muhammad, who's basically the the whole history, if you look at the history of, of that whole religion, it runs with the blood of people who were murdered in his name. And it doesn't show very much pity for those who are outside of their circle. Islam basically says if you're outside of their circle, what do they want to do? They want to cut your head off. They don't want to preach to you any good news. See, that's why the war on terror and this evil that's in the world today that our country is fighting, you can't fight it like a regular war because these people really believe in what they're doing. How are you going to sit down across the table from somebody who says, yeah, okay, I'll sit down and talk to you, and then after we're done talking, I'll slice your throat. And they'll do it thinking that they're doing the right thing according to their God and their beliefs. All the infidels must go. Jews, Christians, they're out of the picture. Buddhists have similar beliefs. Confucianism basically allows a man to... You could have a, a, a somebody fall in a... a a river and drowned 
And they believe that you don't have to help that person. That's just part of the course. That's what happens. It's fate. See, Christianity isn't that way. Isn't that odd? That Jesus laid down an example where he literally got down in the dirt with people and he touched them. And I think that when he did that, he was giving us an example that we should be doing the same thing. I mean, we can't do the miracles Christ did. We just can't do it. Some incredible miracles that he did. But we can do what he did as far as sympathizing with people, as far as loving people, as far as you know, reaching out with compassionate hearts to people. We're called to do that. What was the ministry of Christ? It was teaching, it was expository teaching, and it was also uh, the preaching and the proclaiming of the gospel, and it was also healing people by the affectionate and tender touch of his hand. Well, what motivated Christ to do this? That's what we want to look at today. We'll look at two things. The first one is, what motivated him? And then we'll look at the methods he used. What motivated Jesus? You know, motivation is an important thing. Someone may be doing a lot of good things, and you stop and you say, well, what's motivating this person to do that? And they could have ulterior motives, right? I mean, there's a lot of things, you know, you look at the government and all this stuff and, you know, you, you wonder, oh, they want to give this money. Well, what's the, the motive? See, I think some of the financial industry would have thought twice about accepting some of the money if they realized the motive that it was given to them. Why does God care? Why did he come down to earth? Why did he do this? Look at verse 36. In Matthew 9, it says there, But when he saw the multitudes, he was moved with compassion for them because they were weary and scattered like sheep having no shepherd. And then he said to his disciples, The harvest is full. Now, in those couple phrases there, we find the motivation of Christ. We truly see what motivates him. I think that this whole passage a lot of times is quoted a lot, but it's misapplied. It's even taught a lot, but it it may be explained wrongly. You know, Lord of the harvest, send forth, oh yeah, you know, it must be deal with missions. That's got it deals with we're going to find out what it means this morning see the miracles in chapters 8 and 9 attested to christ's deity that's why he performed them to, to, to kind of give evidence that he was who he said he was that he was the king of kings the lord of lords the messiah that came to save the world from their sins and in chapter 10 we're going to begin to see the associates of the king who he called into service. But between him attesting of his deity and him calling the disciples, there's this little segment here, and it's almost like a transition. It's almost like these little statements here are transitional statements into the next theme. Because you notice that Christ is moving away from the multitudes of people. I mean, from from five on, he was dealing with multitudes. Everywhere he went, multitudes, multitudes, multitudes. He was always teaching the multitudes. 
Well, he's making a transition here away from the multitudes to individuals whom he will be discipling, namely 12, called his apostles. And it's almost the multitudes are still there, but they take a back seat in his priority shift from the multitudes to individual people that he's going to call to follow him and to serve him right alongside of him. And I think what it is is Jesus looking at this task and he realizes that, you know what? God has sovereignly designed this task not to be done by me alone, that I need help. Not that he needs us in the fact that Christ could have come down, died on the cross, been raised from the dead, snapped his fingers, everybody who would have been saved would have been saved, and he could have went back to heaven and everything would have been done. But he didn't choose to do it that way. In his sovereignty, he said, no, I'm going to include you, human beings, sinful human beings, in the process of ministering to a lost and dying world. That's what he calls us to do. And so this transitional process makes... Transition makes the, the, the change from reaching the multitudes to really discipling individuals. And there's three things here that motivate Christ. The first thing that we see in verse 36, it says, He saw the multitudes and was moved with what? Compassion. The first element that motivates Christ is divine compassion. It's divine compassion. I mean, you can kind of picture Christ up on an embankment and all these people all around because they were following him everywhere. The multitudes followed him everywhere because they thought, hey, get, maybe they could see another healing or they could get healed themselves or whatever it might be. And he looks down this slope at the mass of people around him and his heart breaks. And they were always there because they always were looking for healing or something. They mostly came to him just to have their physical needs met, whatever it might be. But he sees beyond their physical needs, all these needy people there. He sees beyond that and he looks into their hearts. And what he sees is darkness. What he sees is great need. And we can get a glimpse into his heart by looking at what he sees in their hearts. It says there that he was moved with compassion. We get our word compassion from a Latin word, which means to suffer with. Jesus suffered with them. He felt their pain, unlike a previous president that said the same thing. I feel your pain. That's not what he's talking about. He truly felt their pain. Now, what's interesting is this has very little to do with us. It really does. It has little to do with us. This is really what it's showing us. Christ is showing us one of his attributes as God. He's revealing an expression of one of his attributes. If you stop and think about it, he cared because what? God is love, right? The Bible says that. God is love. And love cares. It's within the nature of God. And so the first great motive in the heart of Christ to preach and to teach and to heal was God cares about men. And in his nature, because he was God, he cared deeply for these people. In his heart, 
to care. And so over and over again, you see in the gospel records, records, it records for us that Jesus had compassion. Jesus felt compassion. And it wasn't just a feeling. It was who he was. See, that's a very important part. I mean, we have compassion on somebody one day, and the next day, man, we could just walk right over the person because we got an agenda. We're going somewhere. You know, I don't have time for this person right now. See, that's, that's a, kind of a, a compassionate feeling maybe. But Christ was true compassion in the flesh. And for God, because God cares by virtue of who he is, Christ cared because of who he was. He was God. In Matthew 14, verse 14 You can just turn over there a couple pages. It says, Jesus went forth and he saw a great multitude. And what? He was moved with compassion. That's what it says. Matthew 14, 14. Turn a couple more pages. Chapter 15, verse 32. Jesus called his disciples of Matthew 15, 32. Jesus called his disciples to him and said, I have compassion on the multitude. Same gospel, Matthew chapter 18, verse 27. He gives a parable and he says, The Lord of that servant was moved with compassion and loosed him and forgave him the debt that he owed. We looked at that last week. And of course, he is the Lord in the parable. Chapter 20 of Matthew, verse 34. Jesus had compassion on them and touched their eyes and immediately they received their sight and they followed him. And it's not just in the Gospel of Matthew. I'll just read a couple out of Mark. Mark 1.41 says, Jesus was moved with compassion, put forth his hand, and he touched the leper. Mark, chapter, chapter 5 of Mark, verse 19, says it again, Go home to your friends and tell them the great things that the Lord has done for you and that he has compassion on you. Beloved, we serve a compassionate God. And he's compassionate not because he feels like it, He's compassionate because it was in, within his nature, the nature of love, one of his attributes, to be compassionate. Now, this, this Greek word that they use here for compassion, it's very interesting. It literally means to feel something in your bowels. To feel something in your bowels. Splankna is the, the Greek word. It's a noun form, and it means bowels. You know, today it means, you know, we would say guts, entrails, intestines, stomach. I mean, the Bible uses that in, in various places. It uses it uh, in, in uh, Acts chapter 1, verse 18, where Judas talks about Judas after he betrayed Christ. It says, Judas purchased a field, falling headlong. He burst asunder in the midst, and all his what? Bowels gushed out. Same word. The word literally means midsection, internal organs. The Bible talks about the bowels of the earth. What's that mean? The very center, the guts of the earth. The central portion. So it says here that Jesus was moved in the bowels upon them. Why did he use that word? It's kind of a a different way to express, you know, I really care about you. I mean, if, you know, you went home to your 
wife later today and had your arm around her and said, Honey, I just loved you so much. I love you so much. I just moved in my bowels for you. They'd probably slap you across the face. Make sure you get those words right, in right order. Move and bowels, you know. I mean, you don't want to... Anyway. But that's the way the Hebrews discuss things like that. See, it's the same way today when we talk about, dear, I love you with all my heart. What am I talking about? I'm talking about a feeling, a deep feeling I have for my wife. I wouldn't, on Valentine's Day, make a Valentine card and give it to her with a big pulsing red heart on the front, human heart. That'd be gross. Right? We wouldn't do that. See, so it depends on how you perceive something. See, it was just an expression to them. The Hebrews talked about the heart and they talked about the bowels and they had something in mind. When they talked about the heart, they talked about the seat of thought, action, and will. That's what they're talking about. When they communicated about the heart, they're talking about the seat of your actions, your thoughts, and your will. You don't have to turn there, but in Proverbs, I'll just read these for you. It says, as a man thinketh in his heart, so he is. Proverbs 16.21 says, The heart of the wise teaches his mouth. Hebrews 4.12 says, The thoughts and the intents of the heart. Was it talking about the physical heart? No, it's talking about the seat of emotions, action, and will. That's what it's talking about. Romans 10.10, With the heart man believes. Does it physically mean your thing that's pumping your blood? No. It's talking about your will, your intent. Matthew 15, it says, out of the heart proceed evil thoughts. Or out of the abundance of the mouth, out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. So the heart, think of it this way. The heart then, in Hebrew thinking, is the initiator. That's where everything gets started. It's the initiator. And it is that way. There you find the root of thought, action, and will. Once again, they're talking about the seat of emotion. They're not talking about a physical heart. So when they use the word bowels, in Hebrew thinking, that's the responder to the initiator. So the, the, the bowels are what responds to the seat of emotions. The bowels are what respond to the heart. You feel something first there in your heart. You observe, you think about it, you whatever. But then all of a sudden, what happens? Boy, we feel it right down here, don't we? All you have to do is drive down the freeway and, and, and see a horrible wreck where people are just all over the place. What do you get sick? You feel sick to your stomach thinking, wow, that could be us. I feel sorry for those people, whatever. I mean, depending how graphic it is, you may physically get sick to your stomach. See, it affects what goes in to our heart, through our mind and our ears and our senses, affects what goes on in our midsection. And that's what Christ is saying here. I heard in my midsection for these people. I have compassion for these people. 
I mean, stop and think about it. All of our feelings basically arise there. Sexual feelings, fears, needs, anxiety. Think of how we treat it. I mean, the Bible tells us not to worry, but we all worry to some extent. So we have, what, ulcers or colitis or upset stomach or whatever it might be. Why? Because those emotions grip us and they take over. So Jesus literally said that he was wrenched in pain in his midsection. That's what he was saying here when he saw these people. And you're saying, well, were they that bad off? Remember, he's not seeing just what's on the outside. He's seeing what's in the inside as well. And you have to ask yourself, does God care? Does God care supremely? Does God care and love beyond anything we ever even can realize or imagine? The answer from the Word of God is yes, God does care. God does love. Well, you put all that care and you put all that love in a human body. That's what happened when Christ took on a human body. It just can't handle it. Our bodies aren't meant to care that much. And so it's telling us that his body was just... just in major pain because of the compassion he felt for these people. In Matthew eight seventeen, it says, he was dealing with all these six people that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the prophet Isaiah, saying he took, he himself took our infirmities and bore our sicknesses. Remember when we looked at that? We talked about how that meant Jesus... It doesn't mean that Jesus took the leprosy and he became a leper. That's not what it's saying. It isn't the idea that he got leprosy from all those people that he healed. It's the idea that he he was wrenched in agony and sympathy and compassion for these people because he saw the effects of sin in their life. And it upset him, as it should upset us. I've been in certain situations as a pastor and as a chaplain where I've seen parents sick to death over the ill child that may not make it or over the child that didn't make it and passed on. I mean, literally, just grieving to a point where they they can't even emotionally express it anymore. Their body just can't even handle it. Well, you take that and multiply that times 100, that's what Christ felt. Because he was God loving in a fully human body. Turn over to the 11th chapter of John. It's kind of interesting what we see here. Remember, Lazarus is dead and Jesus comes there and he goes to the grave. And look at verse 33. It says, Therefore, when Jesus saw her, Mary, weeping, and the Jews who came with her weeping, it says he groaned in the spirit and was troubled. And we look at that and go, okay, he was a little upset. No, (laughs) no. We, we can't even begin to scratch the surface of what those words mean here this morning. But those terms mean that he was deeply moved. He was seized by an anguishing emotion. But only he would know 
how a supremely loving God is racked by the pain of seeing the ones he loved in anguish. And it wasn't just because Lazarus died, right? Because he was going to raise him from the dead. That was no big deal. He felt all the pain of knowing that all of the humanity that he loved was going to live its entire history out in anxiety because it would always be facing death. I think he gathered together all that anguish and that pain that the knowledge of death itself could bring into one person's thought. He was pained. And it says in verse 35, literally, the Greek says, he burst into tears. Uncontrollable. Verse 38 says, he groaned again. You can translate that one, he shuddered. Have you ever seen somebody so upset, they're crying, their emotion, they start to shake? I've seen it. It's not a pretty sight. You try to talk to them and it's just they're in another world. He sobbed and he wept. He felt that pain. See, our Lord by nature was sympathetic because he was God. And God loves his people. What does the Bible say? God, the Bible says that God is not willing that any should what? Perish. If you want to know the heart of God, look at the emotion that Jesus shows. Look at the emotion of Christ and you'll see the heart of God. God doesn't look around at the world and say, oh yeah, they're getting what they deserve. I enjoy this. This is like a game to me. That's not the God we serve. That would be a sick God. That would be a malicious God. Our God is holy. Our God is perfect. Our God is righteous. Our God is is totally pure. That wouldn't even enter into his thought. God doesn't enjoy the sorrow he sees in the world. It grieves his heart. That's why he's giving opportunity after opportunity after opportunity for people to come to him. To repent of their sins and say, okay, you know what? I'm going to give this a try. Every time Jesus saw a need, he was literally just, his body was racked internally with compassion, with a heartfelt compassion. You see it again in in John 18, where the soldiers take him and twice he says to them, who do you seek? You remember that? And he said, Jesus of Nazareth, Nazareth, and he says that twice. And then basically says, hey, those are your orders, leave these guys alone. He was so compassionate on his disciples, he didn't even give a thought what was going to happen to him. He was just concerned, hey, you need to leave these guys alone. They don't have much to do with this. Just take me. You want me? Take me. And even in the 19th chapter, same gospel, John, you see him on the cross. He's hanging there with four great wounds in his body. I mean, if there was ever a moment that you would think Christ would think of himself, it would be at that point in time. His body's totally reeking with pain. He's been mocked. He's been whipped. He's been scourged. Physically, he's weak. He looks down at the foot of the cross and he sees this little lady, his mother, named Mary. And he realizes that he isn't going to be around anymore. 
to take care for her, to care for her at all. He's not going to be around. And we don't know where Joseph was. He assume he was probably already dead because there's no mention of him. We don't know. And you say, well, what about, you know, her other sons and daughters? Jesus had brothers and sisters. When they weren't believers at this point. So they didn't, you know, they, they couldn't relate. There was no one there to care for his mother. That's what's on his heart. And so what's he do? He commits her to John and John to her. And once that's done, he says, okay, now I can go. Right up to the end, he's thinking of other people. What compassion. What love is that? He looked at those people so many times with pain in his heart as he looked out on the multitudes. He said on one occasion, you will not come to me that you might have life. He doesn't understand it. I'm, I'm giving you life. See, sometimes when we share the Lord with somebody, we don't understand. Why don't you just come to Christ? Why don't you just repent of your sins? Just say, you know what, God, I'm sorry. I mean, you know, if you don't think you have any sin, that's a different issue. Then you need to go read more of the Scripture. And you begin to realize, well, I do have sin. The Bible says that everybody's sinned. There's not one of us in this room has, who has gone without sinning somewhere along the line. And I would probably say most of us do it on a daily basis. So one day, we're going to leave this life. And the Bible says that we will live eternally in one of two places, heaven or hell. You know, yesterday morning at 8 o'clock when I got a call, or 8.15, whatever it was, from Esther, Mary's daughter, she called me on my cell phone. She's crying. She said, my mother passed away this morning at 5 a.m. And I said, well, okay. Um, you know, you know she's, I know she's with the Lord, and, you know, this is the way she wanted. She went, went in her sleep. And, and I said, okay, great. You know, praise the Lord. I mean, you understand your mom is no longer dealing with this cancer that <laughs> made its way through her body. She's no longer in pain. Matter of fact, your mom knows every question, the answer to every question she's ever asked. And trust me, your mom asked a lot of questions, okay? Charlie came up with these weird questions. Like, I don't know. You know, one time I said, why don't you go ask your sister, Althea? She knows the word too, you know? I mean, and they were going to talk to the funeral director and let me know when. And then I said, okay, well, you want me to know? We're fine. We just got to go deal with this stuff. Okay. So within probably, I don't know, Ken was there, it was probably 45 seconds before my phone rang again. I picked it. And it was uh, my brother Paul. And he was telling me about my brother being sick to the point of death. Totally different emotion. Not because it was my brother, but because I don't know where my brother's going. I, I In my mind, I, I don't know. I don't know if, you know, I mean, he could make a death bed conversion people have but it's that fear of the unknown it's like man i hope he knows what's going on here <laughs> totally different feeling see all of us are going to die we're going to end up in one of two places god is compassionate god is loving that's why you're sitting here this morning because you're hearing a message of hope you're hearing a message of forgiveness you're hearing a message that's filled with grace god is saying come to me i want you to come to me have your sins wiped out have them clean have them white as snow just because you come to jesus doesn't mean you turn into some freak see that's what we think in our mind that's the lie of the enemy 
We think that somehow if we come to Christ, you know, we're, we're, we're going to be out on the street corner carrying a 15-pound Bible beating. You know, I, I don't know what we think. But that's not the God we serve, beloved. The God we serve is a compassionate God. The God we serve knows you from even before you were born. He designed you. He knows everything about you. And the one thing he knows is you need a Savior. And his compassion is extended to you time and time and time again, every time you take a breath. We need to remember that. The Bible says that Christ was a man of sorrows and he was acquainted with grief. Matthew 23, 37, Christ says this, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, thou that kills the prophet and stones them who are sent unto you, how often would I have gathered you, your children together, even like a hen gathering her chickens under her wing? But you would not. Christ desires us to come to him. He tells us in Luke 19, when he, he was come near, he beheld the city and he wept over it. So Matthew uses a very, very strong word for compassion. He was wretched in the midsection of his body. How he loved. How he, Thomas Watson said this, We may force our Lord to punish us, but we will never have to force him to love us. That's his nature. See, that must have been good news to the people of the day because the Greek gods at that point that other people served the false gods of the Greeks were basically their number one god was a god of apathy of indifference and basically what had happened to the Jews of the day they were being taught by the Pharisees that God was some old ogre uncaring uninterested indifferent that's why we're here we're taking the place of God and Jesus brought a whole new message. Matter of fact, in 1 Peter 3.8, he calls on us to have the same compassion. Can you imagine that? He wants us to have that same compassion that he had for people. I mean, if you don't understand that, if you don't get that, that just shows you're just revealing to yourself how far removed you are from him. See, we're not only called to minister the gospel, but we're called to minister the gospel because we love, because our hearts are broken over those who are lost. That's why we do it. G. Campbell Morgan, one of his commentaries, he wrote this, There is no reason in man that God should save. In other words, when God looks at man, there's no reason... He doesn't look and say, oh, that guy's got this. Or, no, there's no reason at all. It says the need is born of God's own compassion. No man has any claim upon God. Why then should men be cared for? Why should they not become the prey of the ravening wolf, having wandered from the fold? It has been said 
that the great work of redemption was the outcome of a passion for the righteousness and holiness of God. That Jesus must come and teach and live and suffer and die because God is righteous and holy. I do not so read the story. God could have met every demand of righteousness and every demand of his holiness by handing man, men over to the doom that they brought upon themselves. But deepest in the being of God, holding in its great energizing might both holiness and righteousness is his love and compassion. And it's out of love and out of compassion which inspired the wail of the divine heart that salvation has been provided. See, what moved our Lord? What motivated him? The first thing was compassion. And it was a divine compassion because he was God. The second thing that motivated our Lord was the lost condition of man. The lost condition of man. Look at verse 36. It says, They were faint. They were scattered abroad having, as sheep having no shepherd. <clears throat> See, he moves from his nature of God, saying, I am a compassionate God, to their need. And he saw their real condition. He wasn't fooled by what they put on and the religious front that they put up. He wasn't fooled by the facade that they had, the superficiality. And nor is he fooled by our superficiality when we come into this place on a Sunday and pretend everything's fine when it's not. He said, these people are desperately in need. He uses two words here, incredible words. The first one, faint and scattered. The first one... <clears throat> can mean worn out, exhausted. It means being beaten up, being battered, being mangled. It can even mean ripped and torn, skinned alive. They were devastated, these people. They were weary, the King James says. The second word Scattered means to be thrown down, to be lying prostrate, totally helpless. Listen to this. It's used in the Septuagint version of the Old Testament in Judges 4.22 to speak of a man who was laying dead on the ground with a spike driven through his temples. It means they were mangled, they were devastated, and then they were thrown on the ground totally helpless. That's how he saw them. And you know what? That's how he sees us. <laughs> it says there they saw him because they had no shepherd, a sheep without a shepherd. You know who claimed to be their shepherds? The Pharisees, the scribes, the religious leaders of Jesus' day. They were the shepherds of their people, the shepherds of Israel. And look at what their shepherds did to them. I mean, really, what Jesus is doing here, he's really indicting the spiritual leaders of Israel in his day. That's what he's doing. Their spiritual leaders didn't show them a pasture to graze in. Their spiritual leaders didn't feed them. Their spiritual leaders didn't bind their wounds. You know what their spiritual leaders did? They literally mutilated them. 
They were filleted out. They were mangled corpses. And the scribes and the Pharisees were the culprits. I mean, that's, that's a, a graphic picture of uncaring, unconcerned leaders. And we see here the weariness and the bewilderment and the wounds that have left these people just desolate without a shepherd, the lost. And the reason is, is because their shepherds never helped them. The shepherds didn't give them the tools they needed. In chapter 10, verse 6 of Matthew, it says, The lost sheep of the house of Israel. That's what they're called there. And the, the phrase literally means the sheep that have perished. A t- terrible indictment of the religious leaders of Jesus' day. See, they were offering them, the people, a religion that didn't lift their burdens. It bound burdens on them. They came up with all these rules, these regulations, and people could never live up to that. They're fooling around with silly little arguments here and there about, you know, how big a stick can be before you carry it on the Sabbath, before it becomes... It's ridiculous. And somehow they felt that that made themselves look and feel religious. And the people were utterly just scattered. And the religious leaders were totally indifferent to it. They, they couldn't care less. In Matthew twenty four twenty three, Jesus says, You devour widows' houses. You bind on my people needless burdens. In Matthew twenty three thirteen, Jesus says, You shut people out of the kingdom. Wow. Here's their spiritual leaders of the house of Israel. They're supposed to be their shepherds. And Jesus is calling and saying, you know what? You don't, you don't bring people to the kingdom. You shut them out. You do just the opposite. You know, that's not any different, beloved, than certain religious leaders today who were unwilling for whatever reason to give their people the truth and teach the word of God. And I don't care, you know, what church it is or how big it is or who's the pastor or whatever. If they're not teaching the word of God, okay, if they're not opening scripture and saying, this is God's word, this is God's truth, here's what it says, apply this to your life. These are words of life. If it's a church that, you know what? The only time they have the Bible is they open hold it up in the beginning of the service and that's it. And we, chant a little thing and then they I don't know what they do with it or some of the other aberrant teachers out there that are just teaching for their own self-grandizement and filling their pockets with money and and all that okay you know what people are they're shutting people out of the kingdom and and I'll speak against them till my dying day Because that's what we're called to do. They're they're mangling the body of Christ. They're mutilating them. And then leaving them helpless. Sometimes we 
hear some of those say, well, you know, they're not that bad. I heard them say one good thing. Yeah, right. But the whole premise is wrong. And I mean, you know, it's not just, it's, it's institutes, institutions of religion that, that teach things that are not biblical. I was raised in the Roman Catholic Church, and when I came to faith in Christ, I saw a big difference between what the church taught and what the Bible taught. Just say it plain as day. That, I mean, there was a big difference. There was a lot of contradiction there. I had to make a decision. Am I going to follow God's word, or am I going to follow some guy sitting over in the Vatican? Bottom line. Well, don't you think there's some Catholics that are Christians? By the grace of God, there may be some. But I'll tell you what, they will not stay in that organization because that organization does not teach the true gospel. It doesn't. It teaches a gospel of works. They're not going to get saved if they follow the gospel that they're following, that they're teaching. You say, well, that sounds a little hard line. It's the truth. It's the truth. Sometimes the truth is hard to hear. When I think of my oldest brother and and he's just enslaved to that whole thinking that somehow he's going to do enough to save himself. I'm sorry, I get angry. I get upset a little bit because you know what? He was committed to the church. What did get him? We have to stop and and realize that, you know what? We have to be willing to tell the truth to people. Christ was. He had compassion. And he was was willing to to share that and to, to, but as well, be direct with people. Now, he puts this little little phrase in here that at the end of chapter 36 like a sheep having no shepherd and he points that out that these people are just they don't have any shepherd And then he says in verse 37, kind of an interesting statement. Then he said to his disciples, the harvest truly is plentiful. In other words, the harvest is is filled up. What's he mean by that? What's he talking about the harvest? Some people think, well, he's talking about the lost. That's what he's talking about. He's talking about the elect. Or he's talking about the seekers after God. Some people think it's the number of people who are going to be saved. Well, what's this harvest thing about? What's he talking? He's not talking about Halloween. I mean, what's he talking about here? It's not the harvest of John 4. That's totally different. It's a different picture. In Isaiah chapter 17, turn over there with me quickly. Isaiah 17. In verses... 10 and 11, or 10 and, yeah, 10 and 11. It says this, Because you have forgotten the God of your salvation and have not been mindful of the rock of your stronghold, 
Therefore, you will plant pleasant plants and set out foreign seedlings. Verse 11, in the day you will make your plant to grow, and in the morning you will make your seed to flourish. Then it says this, but the harvest will be a heap of ruins in the day of grief and desperate sorrow. The harvest in Isaiah 17 is judgment, beloved. That's what he's talking about. In Joel chapter 3, verse 9, it says, Proclaim this among the nations. Prepare war. Make up, wake up the mighty men, it says. Let all men of war draw near. Let them come up. Beat your plowshares into swords and your pruning hooks into spears. Let the weak say, I am strong. Assemble yourselves and come, all you nations, and gather yourselves together round about. There cause the mighty ones to down, O Lord. God calls the nations to judgment. Let the nations be awakened and come up to the valley of Jehoshaphat. And there I will sit to judge all the nations round about. Put a sickle. Put in the sickle for the harvest is ripe. See, it's talking about judgment. Come, get down for the press is full. The vats overflow for their wickedness is great. Then this, listen, multitudes, multitudes in the valley of decision. See, the, belief, the Lord really here, when he saw the multitudes... I think he was thinking of Joel. I think he was thinking of Isaiah. He was thinking of the judgment that's going to come. That's what he was thinking of. And I believe our Lord saw the consummation of judgment. And that's the third thing there. He saw the eternal perspective. He didn't see people just in their current problems. He looked deep into their hearts. He saw people who were going to be doomed in hell forever. And in Matthew 13, the Lord's giving this parable... Verse 30, he says, Matthew 13, 30, he says, Let both grow together until the harvest. And in the time of harvest, I will say to the reapers, Gather together first the tares and bind them into bundles and burn them. But gather the wheat into my barn. See, it's judgment. Judgment on the multitudes. Some will be barned and some will be burned. But it's judgment. In verse 39 of Matthew 13 says, The enemy that sowed them is the devil. The harvest is the end of the age, and the reapers are the angels. See, the harvest he sees is not just the mission field. That's what we think of it as. That's not his perspective here. The harvest is the final judgment, the consummation, the end of the ages, the time of grief. That's what he sees. And later on in the book of Revelation, chapter 14, verse 14, he says this, And I looked, and behold, a white cloud, and upon the cloud one sat like the Son of Man, having on his head a golden crown, and in his hand a sharp sickle. And another angel came out of the temple, crying with a loud voice to him that sat on the cloud, Thrust in thy sickle and reap, for the time is come for thee to reap, for the harvest of the earth is ripe. Then he that sat on the cloud thrust in his sickle on the earth, and the earth was reaped. What's it speaking of? Judgment. See, Jesus ministered to people because he loved them. 
He ministered to people because of their terrible condition. And he also ministered to people because of this consummation of judgment that was on its way. See, if you lose those motivations, you've lost your perspective. Paul said in 2 Corinthians 5, the terror of the Lord, that's why we persuade men. Why? Because we understand hell. We understand what it's about. Romans 12 talked about the vengeance of God. In Hebrews, the writer talks about men will die and after this what? The judgment. 2 Thessalonians, the Apostle Paul painted a vivid picture. He says, In the day when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven and his mighty angels in flaming fire take vengeance, taking vengeance on them that know not God and obey not the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, who will be punished with everlasting destruction from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his power. See, it's easy for us to lose the sense of that imminent, inevitable judgment that one day men will face. Ultimately, eternal judgment, a place called hell. You know, if you ever tried to think about hell, if you ever thought about hell, we don't like to think about hell, we don't like to preach messages on hell, but if you ever thought about it, I mean, there's no way we can really describe it. The Bible doesn't tell us a whole lot about hell. Nothing on earth can compare with it. No living person can really ever comprehend it. I mean, the worst dream you ever heard, ever had, doesn't even scratch the surface of what it's going to be like in hell. Your worst nightmare is nothing like what hell will be like. I've been to some pretty grisly crime scenes on occasion. I mean, to the point where you know, I just have to turn away. I can't even fathom what went on. And that doesn't even scratch the surface of what hell's going to be like. It almost physically made me sick. See, when our Lord saw the crowds, when he reached out to these people... And he taught them and he preached the gospel to them and he healed them. It was because of his compassion. And it was because of their lost condition. And it was because of the ultimate judgment that was coming. And it's interesting how he deals with this. He has a, a threefold method. First of all, the insight. You have to understand the problem. That's what he says in verse 37 of Matthew 9. The laborers are few. In other words, I can't do this alone. The laborers are few. That's insight. See, we need to wake up and look around and realize that we're living in a world that's lost and perishing and on its way quickly to hell. Once we assess that problem, well, then what are we going to do about it? What are we going to do about it? Well, what Jesus calls us to do is this, to intercede. That's what he says in verse 38, Matthew 9. He doesn't say panic. Oh, no, look at the coming judgment. What are we going to do? All these people are going to end up in hell. No, he says, first of all, intercede. Don't panic, pray. See, so many times we bypass that. We want to be so involved in ministry that we just kind of step over prayer and then just jump in, roll up our sleeves and jump in. 
We've all done that. God calls us, no, you know what? You assess the problem, then you intercede. You come to me in prayer. You don't come up with some big program. That's not what he says. You come to me in prayer. And he says, pray, therefore, the Lord of the harvest. He doesn't say do it as quick as you can because the judgment's coming. No, he says pray. Pray to the Lord of the harvest. The very God who is the Lord of the harvest, the God who is the judge, is the one that we are supposed to ask to send forth workers to prevent people from getting into judgment. Isn't that amazing? See, there's part of God that demands judgment, but there's also an attribute of God that seeks that no one be there. He says, pray that the Lord of the harvest will send forth workers into his harvest before the judgment comes. So Christ sees this mass of humanity moving toward judgment. And he says, man, you better pray. Pray that God will send forth workers because there are none. There are very few. To stop and pray. Notice what they're praying for. Doesn't say to pray for the lost. Doesn't say that. So many times we want to pray for the lost. It doesn't say that. It doesn't instruct us to pray for the lost. It says, pray the Lord of the harvest for laborers. You can sit around all day and, oh, you know, I'm just going to pray for my old Aunt Susie. Just got to pray for her that one day, one day God would save her. That's praying for the lost. That's not going to do a whole lot of good. But when you start praying for laborers to reach the lost, you can only pray that prayer so long, beloved. Try it. You, you don't trust me. You go home today and you start praying for your lost neighbors. And you pray for them this way. You go to God and you say, God, you know what? Send somebody to reach my neighbor. My neighbor's as lost as he can be. I, Lord, I pray that you would send a worker, somebody who's going to stand up for the truth, someone's going to share the gospel with my lost neighbor. Lord, please, please, I pray that you would send somebody over there. How long do you think you're going to pray that prayer before God taps you on the soldier and said, Hey, do you ever think about going over there yourself? That's exactly what's going to happen. See, that's why we don't pray for the lost. We pray for laborers to reach the lost. And when you do that, it naturally leads to the third thing, your involvement. We have insight, understand people are lost. Then we have to go to God in prayer, intercession. And that leads to our involvement because we're praying that the Lord of the harvest will send forth his laborers. That's what God calls us to do as a church. Are we doing it? Are we faithfully doing it as individuals? Are we reaching out to those in our sphere of influence at work, at play, at the grocery store, wherever it may be, with the gospel of Christ? Because if we're not, we're not fulfilling what God has called us to do. Pray that this word will encourage your hearts today. We prepare our hearts for our communion table this morning. Father, we thank you for your word. Lord, I thank you that... Well, I thank you that we're able to get through chapter 9, Lord. (laughs) That's good. I know it's a little longer. But, Father, we pray that you would prepare our hearts for our communion time this morning. 
Lord, we thank you that you're a God who works in miraculous ways. God, you're a God who is able to see beyond our outward appearance and you look directly at our heart. You know what's going on. You know what's in the heart of each individual here this morning. And Lord, as we come to this communion time, the Bible instructs us that we should examine ourselves as believers before we partake. That we should, if there's anything hindering our fellowship with you, anything that maybe we haven't confessed, the Bible says that we should confess our sins to you because you're faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. This table this morning that we celebrate around is really the table that secures our salvation. This is, this is really the, the table, a representation of what secured our salvation. Lord, this is why Mary Pollux is in heaven today, because your son went to a cross and died in her place, and she personally put her faith in you. And Lord, that's available to anybody who would cry out, Lord, be merciful to me, a sinner. Save me from my sin. Lord, I don't even know if I can change, but God, help me to change. I know I can with your help. He'll answer that prayer. He'll change you even as you sit here this morning, the quietness of this moment. Father, we thank you for the sacrifice of your son, and we pray that you would just minister to us during this time. We ask this in Jesus' precious name. Amen.